Hello and welcome to the Overland Journal podcast. I am your host, Scott Brady, and I am here with my illustrious co-host, Matt Scott. I am sitting in the general vicinity. Who does have some news he's going to share with us in a couple of minutes. So we'll Lots of news. excited to hear about Big news. Actually, news that. on two fronts that yes. are very significant. Okay. Me. All right. So you'll have yeah. to stand by for that. The most important person in the room is Nina Barlow. Nina is has been in this industry for nearly 30 years and has literally changed the landscape of much of what we do, particularly around events and four-wheel drive training and vehicle rentals. So her business is expansive and services our industry in many different ways. Of course, with all of that time, you've gained so much experience and knowledge. So we're going to ask her a bunch of questions today, not only about how did she get to this point, but the lessons that Nina has learned along the way. So Nina, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. My honor. We're going to take a brief break and we will be right back. This week's episode is supported in part by iCamper. They make innovative hard shell and soft-sided roof tents that are designed to survive long-term overland use. Their revolutionary X-Cover won the Overland Journal Editor's Choice Award, eliminating the bulky PVC cover and also allowing for the fitment of crossbars for carrying bikes and kayaks. Their SkyCamp Mini is another award-winning design that provides a hard shell tent in the footprint of a much smaller clamshell model. This is the perfect solution for smaller vehicles or on vehicles where rack space is dedicated to other systems. iCamper believes that the best times are those spent traveling, discovering the world with those you love most. You can find out more about their quality tents at iCamper.com. Oh yeah. I mean, I think back on all of the times that we've done cool little projects together, including I think we got wrangled into a jalopnik winching video at one point in time. Right? Totally <laughs> off the cuff. <laughs> it was totally like, hey guys, can we get can we get you guys stuck and shoot a video? Sure. <laughs> right. <laughs> we, fig- we figured it out. That was really fun. Yeah, we've definitely seen each other at a lot of events and I've heard your stories of success. So one of the things that I wanted to ask was how did you get from wherever you were living in the country? So maybe share a little bit about where you grew up and what were some of the experiences that you had that led you to wanting to to become a four-wheel drive trainer and expert? So I grew up in the desert outside of Palm Springs, California. Okay. A graduate of Palm Springs High School. I won't I say when. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> it was just a few years ago. Right. Um, it was a thousand acre ranch. And um, so four-wheeling was just part of daily life, really. And I think it was maybe sometime in my 20s that I realized that people did this just for fun. I remember my dad had an early Bronco. And um, if he showed up, you know, to pick me up at school, you know, when I was a teenager, that was just oh my gosh, that was so embarrassing. And what you would give to have that car now. <laughs> right. Yeah. There was when he sold it, there was rending of garments and gnashing of teeth in the family, definitely. <laughs> you know, outdoor industry became part of my life when um, I started getting involved with the hot air balloon business okay. in Palm Springs because I could drive a truck and trailer and I could four-wheel ground crew stuff there. And then I went away to college, um, was still doing that. And what did you go to college for? I went to college for sports and recreation management. Well, and that's what you do. <laughs> With a coaching certification. Oh, right? that's yeah, so cool. Absolutely. I got college credit for rafting. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I did not. Yeah, I was clearly on the wrong degree program. Uh, right. I, I went to school in Peoria, Illinois. Why? No, whitewater rafting. <laughs> yeah. <Peoria>. Yeah. <laughs> when I came back, I knew I didn't want to go back to Southern California at that point. Um, I had had family in my family had owned property in Sedona since the 70s. And mm. so I kind of knew that's where 
where I'd end up. Just went to work in the as a Jeep tour guide in the Jeep tour business, which has of course been you know booming since the '60s. There, I didn't know and, it was that long yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah. Pink Jeep started. Um, Don Pratt was actually a realtor. Would take people around in a Jeep to get them excited cool about the was, area, about real sure. estate, and he realized that the. Taking them around was more of the attraction than actually (laughs) selling the real estate. Of course, both now. Sure. (laughs) Uh, And I ended up, uh, you know, that was just kind of getting in the Jeep tour business and Jeep business was kind of something to do until I settled down. You know, got a real job. Sure. Became an adult. (laughs) So overrated. So yeah. (laughs) So here we are. You know, thirty years later, that just that whole settling down and getting a real job thing. Growing up is in fact overrated. Yeah, right. yeah, and optional. Yeah, yeah, it is. You get to make choices. <laughs> I've never had a real job ever. Yeah, it's true, <laughs> right? Not that I'll admit to. I wouldn't change that. I started my own business in 2004 after working for other companies for about 10 years. I had a lot of great bosses, and then I had a lot of bosses that we would say, you know, you learned a lot what not to do. Oh, sure. So those are some of the earliest lessons. And that's and that's no question part of what forms us as entrepreneurs is those experiences where you see this is an opportunity or they're not doing it in this way. And I think that that's a really interesting way to go about it. Now, when you were on the ranch, so this this is kind of a fun thing about you that I didn't know about the cattle ranch because my family had a cattle ranch in Arizona, just outside of Casa Grande. I learned a lot about driving off-road on the ranch because it was just part of your job. Exactly. So you didn't want to get stuck. And there were some really practical, the vehicles were always aired down, not that low, but they were always aired mm-hmm. down in some capacity. And you kind of learned momentum a little bit, but you didn't want to beat the trucks up because then you had to, you know, you were in trouble if you if you broke something. Yeah. So you <laughs> right. strike that that really fine balance. What were some of the things that you learned about vehicles or also I s- suspect you were riding horses at the time? What were some of the things that were takeaways from you from the family ranch? Don't get caught. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. That's perfect. Yeah, there, there's some things that we did that certainly is that I, I had cousins and and it was definitely, oh, don't tell our dads. We well, we got to figure out how to get ourselves out of this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's good advice. So <clears throat> all that are listening, don't get caught. Right. Right. <laughs> uh, so what did you guys use out on the ranch for vehicles? Were they mostly full-size trucks and things like that? Yes, mostly mostly full-size, you know, heavy-duty trucks. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you know, the tractors and, and we had the, the Bronco, yeah. the V6 Bronco too. So. And then you were probably towing stock trailers around in the sand and through washes and everything else. I right. mean, it, it's amazing how much you learn about driving. For me, it was definitely on the ranch. And then when I was working out at the Barry M. Goldwater and doing patrol, it's like I was always in four-wheel drive. Right. And I just, it became, I was doing it eight hours a day, every single day. And it's amazing what you learn about just the subtleties of driving right. from that. And do you find that was the case for you? Yeah, absolutely. Sand, we had a lot of sand and we had a lot of washes. One of our, don't let our dads catch us uh, stories was I had the, you know, the long bed crew cab and I knew just enough at that point. I think I was 12. Okay. Uh, All right. And I knew just enough that this wash was too narrow to get this truck across if I just went straight through, you know. So I knew just enough that I was like, well, I'll use momentum. You know? <laughs> and it was enough to get the front bumper hung up on the far side of the wash and the, and the tailgate hung up on the back side with all four tires hanging in the air. <laughs> Boy, I could have used some max tracks then. <laughs> it was a great story. Hour, hours of rock stacking and yeah. <laughs> jacking. Most of your days, even mm-hmm. though you're managing, uh, how big is your team now? Because you have two locations. Mm-hmm. Actually, maybe three. Do you still do the Rubicon Trail work? We do, yeah. As far as brick and mortar locations um, for rental pickup and drop off stores. It's uh, the retail stores. We call them. We just have Moab and Sedona. And then we held permits in a lot of places. Um, You know, Rubicon Trail, of course, we're up there just in the summertime. That's about a 10 or 12 week season, depending Mm -hmm. on snowpack on one end and 
yeah. wildfires on the other. Sure. Uh, down in uh, El Centro, Yuma, Glamis area. Oh, sure. Which, of course, this time of the year, we get to follow the good weather around <laughs> for the most part. So we operate regularly in on the Rubicon Trail, Moab, Sedona, El Centro. I feel like I'm forgetting something. So you drive these vehicles nearly every day. You're oftentimes, even though you run a large organization, you're still the subject matter expert for your team. You have other folks that can do work, but you're definitely the subject matter expert. So that keeps you out in the field a lot with OEMs and right. other clients. You've had a lot of Jeeps. One of the questions that I was asking, in fact, you drove up in a 4xE. How is the 4xE to drive off-road now that you've like really driven them? It's currently my favorite for many reasons. I love reasons. the idea of the yeah. plug-in hybrids. It's what, 21 miles of electric range they claim? Yeah, it's, and we've gotten up to 27. You know, okay, there's, a, of good. course, there's a lot of variability, just like gas mileage, you know, if you're driving sure. super fast or uphill. For the rally last year and this year too, coming up with Jeep, I had the choice of the, the 392 or the 4xE and it was hands down, I want the 4xE. For the amount of torque you have um, and the horsepower, but you get twice the range out of a tank of fuel. Significant. <laughs> right. Off-road, what mm -hmm. are you noticing? Are you noticing things that don't work that well or are you noticing things that work even better with the electric? It is really a different experience when you drive it in all electric mode off-road and all you hear is the crunching of the tires. Needless to say, on the 392, that's not the, the noise <laughs> you're hearing. <laughs> have you bought a 392 yet? I have not. It is actually the only Wrangler drivetrain that I'm like, I don't need one of those, but yeah, I've got You don't want your else. clients in one of those. Yeah. Sure. Oh, yeah. That was, of course, when those were coming out. Oh, are you going to rent those? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> For those on YouTube, uh, you can fill in the blanks. <laughs> uh, they're fun to drive. You can't help but get in a 392 and turn 12. Yeah. You both mm. have driven them. I mean, you know. It's I like, haven't actually we, driven it. We've got one coming next week. Ooh. When were you going to tell me this? I, we weren't. I, we weren't going to tell you. No, it's coming. No. It's coming, Matt. Like of, of all the press cars we get, the only two that have excited me are the Ford Maverick for some reason. Yeah, which is super cool. Like there's like there's been some really cool stuff that comes right. through the office. Ford Maverick, charming. 392, I want it. Like there's actually maybe a strategy that involves you working with Laura to ensure that I don't ever go too near it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm staying out of that program. Right. You've had everything from power wagons mm -hmm. to four by E's and mm -hmm. even trail hawk Cherokees mm -hmm. and all. What is your favorite vehicle? Right now? It's, yeah. I, I don't know if Matt, Matt's going to look at me funny, but it's like, I, I didn't think I was going to like the Gladiator, but honestly. Um, Gladiator's as, great. Yeah. As far as the, the the body and the setup, that mm. that kind of mid-sized pickup truck setup, I didn't think I was going to like it because I have a power wagon, you know, and I have the Wrangler. Um, and it's like, this is kind of in the middle. It's not the best at either thing. Sure. But honestly, it's um, now it's my, I'm using it 90% of the time. The power wagon sort of has been relegated to almost exclusively tow duty. Towing, going yeah. to Home Depot. Because I'm using <laughs> the, the Gladiator on the trail now. Cause it's great. I just love, you know, we just got back from the dunes and it's like, just fling your dirty Sandy Max tracks in the back, you know. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I, I think for, for overland use, the Gladiator is just really fast. It's really it takes, good. It takes almost all of the benefit of the Wrangler and then makes it more comfortable. Right. Yep. You know, it's that huge wheelbase. Mm -hmm. And then once you start to do anything to them, you put them on a two inch lift with 37s right. and the proportionality of it really comes into play. I love mine. Right. Like, I don't know how much longer mine will be around, but it is probably well, we never the, know with you. Yeah, <laughs> it is probably the vehicle that I build like virtually mm -hmm. 
more than any other. There's something about that max tow package. If you can, the combination is tough because like I want the manual transmission, mm. which you can't get the max. So there's some things around it, but if I could end up with a manual transmission gladiator, I just want, I want it. So <laughs> I, want I want a white, <laughs> white one. You know, I don't want, I don't even want the Rubicon. I just want a basic gladiator I think with a manual, tra- with a manual transmission, uh, which will maximize the payload. And I really kind of want it. So that's the one I build more often. I'm like, Oh, it's just, it just went up five grand in the last three months <laughs> somehow I, I keep building jls all right so let's let's pull it back into coming back around kind of your development in the industry what was the first what was that pivotal moment because i can think of mine and and what was your pivotal moment when you realized i'm going to be able to make a career out of this where you had that mm-hmm. moment of success where you're now vaulted into this position of authority i had been training commercial guides when i was working for other companies you know training these tour guides and and i was getting a lot of requests i'd get a guide that was say, hey, you know, my brother-in-law just bought a Jeep. He's not a guide, but would you mind spending you know, an hour or two with him, you know, showing him some stuff? And th- those started to get more frequent and it kind of dawned on me. I'm like, yeah, there, there could be a demand for this. You know, I'm gonna, I'm going to kind of take this program, this commercial guide training program and kind of, you know, modify it for civilian use, so to speak, uh, sure. just recreational users. And, uh, and then, you know, maybe one one Saturday a month or something, you know, I'll get business cards printed, put a website up, just do a little side business. And within one year of doing that, I had so many requests. I left working for other people, was on my own, running my own business. And that was, it was kind of that like mm-hmm. frying pan in the back of the head moments where it was like, yeah, I'm really oh, good people, at this. People yeah. want this, you yeah, know? For sure. And <laughs> you're really good amazing. at it. Amazing. Yeah. And it was, yeah, it was very, very fun, very, uh, very fulfilling, you know, yeah. to just see the light, the light go on for people, you know, on stuff that I grew up with and just kind of took for granted. Yeah. Really. We have always gotten great feedback on you as a trainer. In fact, Overland Journal uses you as our trainer. So you help train all of our new editors. You've spent a lot of time with Paula, our producer of the podcast recently and showing (laughs) her how to drive in the dunes and everything else. So there's a reason why we use you as our trainer of choice is because you're so excellent at building upon those foundational components of driving, which leads me to another question of what do you think are some of the two, three, four key components of good driving? What makes for a good driver? Some things you can give so, some basic w- advice. What on. I always tell my students, first off, um, whether it's a rock crawling class or or sand dunes class, is like that. You know, um, when you're driving well, your career as a YouTube star is over. It's a <laughs> good driving looks like ballet. So if I tell you you all look like a bunch of ballerinas out here, that's a good thing. That's a mm. compliment. You know, good driving is fluid. Whether you're going a half a mile an hour in a in a boulder field or 120 miles an hour, you know, around a racetrack, whatever you're driving, your corrections are smooth. Mm. It's your throttle, your brake, your steering inputs are all very fluid and smooth. And that comes from looking further ahead. Um, we spend a lot of time just teaching people how to look. It's amazing how uh, people fixate on like what's right in front of their hood. You know, if you've done track driving, taught that you don't look at the tire wall in the corner, you're looking where you're coming out the on the other side. Yeah. Um, and I've had trainers on tracks that they will actually block the windshield of the car. So you can only look at, you're doing your laps and you're only looking out the side. Sure. <laughs> I don't think they do that anymore. There's like OSHA and Something. insurance companies and things about it. <laughs> but that's <laughs> a modern society. <laughs> but that's a great Before example. Before Matt's time. No. That's a great example. I'm going to have to think of a zinger for you now. Okay. You guys have gotten two zingers. Yeah, he's going to make old people jokes or something. Okay, boomer. Yeah. <laughs> We're, not boomers. No. We're not boomers. Gen X, baby. <laughs> that's right. That's some great insights. What are mm-hmm. some other things that come to mind that you think are, are these core principles of people driving well? It's the looking further ahead. That's going to help you make your smooth 
transitions and adjustments. Um, it's leaving your ego at home. Mm-hmm. Um, your ego can't be the one making the driving decisions. Yeah, the number of rollovers that have happened just because of not stopping. Right. We could have right. we could have saved the car. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the forwards at all costs mentality. Yeah. It's yeah. like um, no. Sometimes eighty percent of the time, getting yourself unstuck is just backing up. <laughs> <laughs> Sooner than later. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. It's a lot more mental. You know, people want to hear they want to hear physical skills and um, or or modifications of the vehicle. It's like go yeah. spend more money on your vehicle. That's go spend yeah. mon- more money on yourself. You can actually right. take it with you. So yeah, leave your ego at home. Look further. Smooth corrections. You've talked a lot about, we call it mechanical sympathy when yes. we talk about the concept. You talk a lot about being gentle on the car. Mm-hmm. Can you expand upon that a little bit? The mechanical sympathy. So it, when I'm when I'm out in a Wrangler, I mean, I've spent so many hundreds of thousands of miles and hours, whatever, in, in Wranglers. I mean, to me, it feels like an extension of my body. Mm-hmm. That's a great place to be able to get. And um, and some of that we can't necessarily train into you. We can do little exercises we do you know, with new people. A lot of times we'll put cones out so they're getting used to. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to know where the, the passenger's side of the car is. I was going to say the right side of the car, but I know yeah. with, with you guys, I can't <laughs> specify right or left. Passenger yeah. side might be on the left side. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Getting used to the feel of the car and making it feel like it's an extension of your mm. body. If you set your mind on that kind of goal, it's like, all right, now I'm in this huge prospector, you know, and I'm going to consciously try to make a decision. Do I know where those each of those four tires are at any given time? That's going to help you a lot. Mechanical sympathy. I have people ask me questions a lot of times like, um, okay, so you're climbing Oldsmobile Hill. I at Glamis. It's like, so what RPM are you at? I'm like, I have no idea. Yeah. You know, I can, I hear and I feel the car. You feel that pressure back on the pedal and you know you're going to make it or not by how yeah. that pedal feels, mm-hmm. you know, if you're in the right gear. And it's different for every car. It's different. If I put, take the 37s off the Gladiator and put 33s on, it's going to be different. You know? Yeah. So that's great. <laughs> yeah. That's, no, those are, that is, um, that is excellent. But it is like in the Rebel Rally. So uh, Emily Miller talks about like the car is your third teammate. Mm. So, you you know, you take care of yourself, you got to take care of your navigator and you got to take care of your car. All three of you have to have to make it. Mm-hmm. And it's great when you have a passenger with mm-hmm. you um, that you can use them as a gauge. If they're uncomfortable, the car is probably suffering too. Yeah, so, you can always yeah. tell. And for those that are listening, when you're driving, you're starting to exceed your skills when you're no longer able to maintain a casual conversation. I know when a driver is getting to their limits is because they will get quiet. I will see the the whites of their knuckles mm-hmm. around the steering wheel. They'll tighten their neck mm-hmm. and they'll stop talking. Mm-hmm. So when we when we're driving with someone we can very quickly determine the skill of the driver in how casual they are in doing something hard. If they're very casual around it and they're able to talk to you and, or maybe even right. explain what they're doing, how the car feels, then right. you know that you're dealing with someone that's well within their capability. If you see your passenger start to grab for grab handles, holding their breath, <laughs> tensioning up, you see their feet pressing against the <laughs> firewall. Right. <laughs> and the problem with it is that don't we want to have fun with the people that we're out with? Everybody's going to have a different level of comfort. Someone's going to be like, take me on the e-ticket ride. I want I want the craziest four-wheeling that we can do. But then maybe you've got your grandma with you or whatever. Have it be an enjoyable experience for your passenger and you can tell how they're doing based upon their body language. <laughs> my dogs have a, an expression that they get on their face when uh, they're like, mom. <laughs> when my greyhound stands up, that means that he is no longer having fun off-road. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> we're not only being mechanically sympathetic of the vehicle, mm-hmm. we're being sympathetic sympathetic of the people in the vehicle with us. Right. Um, and that's when you actually start to have more fun because it's not an ego thing. It's not about pushing 
yourself or the vehicle to 90% or 95% because it, you can so quickly, if something goes sideways, be at 105%. Mm-hmm. And then you don't have enough talent to save the day. Yeah. Right. And that happens to people all the time. People run out. Right. I, I think with modern cars, I'll say that one of the greatest risks is running out of talent. Like let's take a, a TJ. Driving really fast in a TJ was like self-correcting. <laughs> you could only go so yeah. fast before your kidney ended up someplace else. Yeah. With the JK, people could take it a little further. Yep. JL or a Gladiator driving fast, they can take it even mm-hmm. further. I mean, these cars are... They're better and better. You know, we think like, oh, it's a JK. It just has the, the Pentastar. It, it has just under 300 horsepower like mm-hmm. pickup trucks had that 10 years ago or, or whatever that you know the the example is it's still a lot of power mm-hmm. and these you know raptor trx these things yep 700 horsepower you can get yourself yeah. in trouble really really quick that's if right you don't know what you're doing so i think using the passenger i think that that's really important it's also and i know i'll put my old lady voice on. i know matt can't <laughs> relate to this but scott will hear what i'm saying it's like we come from we talk uh, about morse code hey, hey, oh <laughs> No, I'm pa- talking about pre-power steering and ABS. I know you can think of them as anti-cars. I, I, they were I, just cars to us. So, you know. It was just called a car. <laughs> so does, that, does that make you guys my vintage friends? Oh. Yes, for sure. For sure. Um, but those skills that you have to develop to you know, handle, even even a TJ actually yeah. is pretty rudimentary in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, and we got the JKs that had the first electronic stability control. Mm-hmm. It takes away that responsibility from the driver and puts it on the car to keep you from skidding out of control, yeah. you know, in an icy turn or something like that, which is great. I think it saved a lot of people, but it's also wonderful if you have the skills to do that for yourself so that um, A, you're still making good driving choices um, and B, you know what the car is doing and you can really appreciate yeah. what the car is doing mm-hmm. for you. When I got in a, uh, the TRX for the first time, I was amazed at, you know, th- that thing stops as well as it goes. It has good you brakes. Know? Yeah. Um, and it's amazingly forgiving but yeah, at the speed at which you need it to be forgiving, if it stops being forgiving, <laughs> yeah. then yeah. you are in trouble. But, yeah, it's um, so easy but, to exceed that. And, yeah. and I think that leads me to the next question is, as modern vehicles have gotten so good, let's take a, a Wildcat or Wild Track Bronco, lockers front and rear, sway bar disconnect, or a Rubicon or whatever. These vehicles are incredibly capable from the factory. Right. You don't really need to modify them right. in most conditions. So since the vehicles have gotten so much better, the OEMs have adopted a lot of the the aftermarket accessories right into a model of the car training now becomes the most important consideration what would you su- what would you suggest Nina around training like what should someone be looking for first like how do they find a trainer mm-hmm. what is the curriculum that they should be looking at first that you have found to be most successful do you suggest that people use rental vehicles or their own vehicles what are some of the things that people should be looking for in training that's a lot of questions yeah okay so we had our next hour planned out here. No. <laughs> so yes absolutely Absolutely. And thank you. I was like, Scott's my greatest uh, marketing tool. Everyone should take training. Yeah, what he said. (laughs) They are very complicated. Um, The Rubicons, um, as you know, you know, now come out and and they have different programming. You're in two high, you go to four high, your traction control system, your stability control system, which are two different programs. Four low, then you have your axle lock front and rear and you've got sway bar disconnect. And just, you know, we can spend an hour trying to get people just to understand those buttons. Sure. And you've been in my parking lot we have those bumps we call them the bumps that are in our back parking lot where we can get the vehicles articulated just to show them that that's like the very first thing we've had people rent jeeps from us they have jeeps at home and you know just our standard we're sending you out for the day in a rental our standard you know 20 minute orientation they're like i learned more in 
in this 20 minutes mm. than I have 10 years owning a Jeep. So there's still, I think more and more people are coming up as trainers. You know, Bronco has their off-rodeo program yet uh, now. And that's that's great. The more training that is out there, um, the better it is yeah. for all of us. Oh, the better it is for our trails. Yes. And that's why I'm a huge proponent of training. Yes. So we can keep our trails open. Yeah. Tread Lightly. Yeah. Organizations like Tread Lightly do a lot towards educating people about. Actually, here's something we can get on board with is uh, just some of the terminology that we use. As you know, in, auto, in the automotive business, we have Toyota has the A-Track system yeah. And, yeah. and crawl control. And Jeep, we call it traction control and, uh, Jeep just has and the select speed stuff. control. Yeah. You know, So we have all this different nomenclature. Um, in the trail use world, we call this off-roading. And actually, off-road by you know insurance and land use definition is you know leaving the established trail. Correct. And so some of this terminology that's that's common is like something that you know we need to work on defining better for people because you know we see it in Sedona. You know they think okay as soon as we leave pavement we can drive wherever we want and we don't have to wear a seatbelt and we yeah. can drink whatever we want. Yeah, and sure. It's like, yeah, that's no. <laughs> not, even, not even close. Yeah, yeah, not even close. And there are very few areas of the country where off-roading where you don't have to stay on trail is actually legal. Yeah. Like Glamis, like Cinders and help me out here. I'm thinking uh, Cinders is actually the only place in the entire state of Arizona that you can drive off trail. I can't think of anywhere else where yep. it's legal. And there are some of those in California yeah. where they're just full OHV areas yeah. and you can just kind of drive wherever you feel like. Right. Which I'm I'm glad like that those Glenn. places exist. Yeah, yeah I think too, those places so. need to exist. Yeah, but, for sure. You know, again, to, to recognize that off-road does not right. mean off-trail. Yes. So, but it's the term off-road. So, you in Sedona, you've seen them. We have the signs everywhere. The Forest Service signs that say "off-road driving prohibited." We've had guests, bless their hearts, turn around and say, "Are we sure? I think we went the wrong way because we saw a sign yeah. that uh, off-road driving prohibited." It's like, no, no, no. Thank you for being conscientious, but it just means you, you can't. You are on a road. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. you have to stay <laughs> you, on the established on, trail. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. Let's circle back to. Yeah. What kind of training should people look for first? Absolutely responsible land use. If you do nothing else, and whether you're mountain biking, hiking, camping, you know, whatever. I mean, before you you go use public land, um, just have a basic understanding. And that in itself is challenging. What's yeah. Forest Service land? What's the difference between national forest and, and national park, state trust land? We have so much public land, especially out here in the West. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just kind of getting a basic understanding of the lay, lay of the land and, mm-hmm. and how to be out there responsibly. Then we move on to vehicle. Vehicles, you know, it's really important to stay on trail and, you know, some basic outdoor. A, a lot of people just didn't grow up with a, with a mindset of this, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, I, I like to think, put myself in 16-year-old Matt's shoes that grew up, you know, in the land of the suburbs and, and mall parking lots mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff. You go to the West Coast and it's just like so open. Yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah, I can drive here. I can drive here. Right. Can, like drive wherever. And it's like, no, like I think yeah. you have to have that etiquette. And I, we've definitely, I think, seen that during the pandemic where people who traditionally didn't go outside or outside in the same way or starting to go camping and four-wheeling and, and whatever and, mm-hmm. and instilling that that respect, I think, for public lands right. is way easier to close a gate than it is to open it. I would agree. And that's certainly the factor going forward is why that's why training is important because then a trainer can explain to you when do you go into four low right from too high to reduce trail impact right and save your tires tires are right. expensive when do you go Lockers. into when do you go into four low when do you engage a locker why would you do the sway bar disconnect do you recommend that people start off with like a two-day course or a one-day course what are some of the things that as, people should be as looking much for? as they can if they can spend an hour in a group setting in a like maybe know, at an, an overland expo or something yeah. like that 
that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Overland Expo is great. There's a lot of training opportunities there. Mm-hmm. You know, things like Jeep Jamborees. And sure. there's a lot of big clubs who, you know, incorporate training, at least just some basic stuff sure. to some of their things. We're doing that with, with Red Rock Four Wheelers and Moab. We're actually, we've been doing some things where we're training the trail guides, which is really fun. Go train the trail guides, yeah. not just so they can explain to the sure. people better, but, you know, kind of have, have some consistency there too. Well, and, so. and a lot of those trail guides are so skilled, mm-hmm. but they have not been taught how to teach. Right. That's another part of it is right. how do you communicate that, what you feel and what you've learned through decades of driving in Moab, mm-hmm. how do you communicate that to somebody who just started? Right. And like, what are those basic principles? Well, that that's great reminder, Nina, on the, I believe, the critical nature of training. We believe so much in the fact that people should be spending more money on their travel than they do on their vehicle. You should be spending more money on training than you do on accessories and modifications. And if we look at it from that perspective, we will become much better drivers. Yes. Because if we use a stock Wrangler to go where we want to go and we learn how to drive it, and you realize, actually, I don't need that lift kit. I don't need those tires. And then right. we can use that money for gas. and. Right. I'm trying to think of a place that a stock Wrangler cannot go. <laughs> yeah. It has to get it's really a, extreme. It, it gets really extreme, yeah. honestly. I mean, we were talking about, like, I didn't think I was going to like the Gladiators. Oh, it's going to be limited and we're going to take it. And I'm taking it on Terminator and, and yeah. Moab Rim and trails like that, you know. It's so, surprising. Right. But it is on 37s. And I think that 99% of people don't need we lift did the, and tires. We did the Rubicon and Gladiators stock. It's ama- like, there's it's some amazing. things that we bypass, like crazy stuff. But There might have been some three-dimensional modifications. Yes. <laughs> they, 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 do, they do that. They do that. Yeah, exactly. But it's a pay-to-play sport, too. So yeah. yeah. What has been the thing that you've learned most from being a trainer this long? Like, what, have you, what observations Ooh. have you gained about individuals and people in training? For me, the most important thing is never stop being a student. Yeah. Um, and so I'm always looking, I'm actively looking for what's the next lesson that I'm mm-hmm. going to learn. There's always, of course, there's always new tools and equipment yeah. coming out and stuff like that. But you can learn, you can see things from the newest, greenest student in your class and they'll ask a question or point something out that you never thought of that way. And it's like, that's, that's actually cool. really cool. Yeah. Humility within the training ranks is super important because right. someone being teachable as a trainer is as important as them being a good teacher. And I think we see that a lot. We talk about ego earlier that there's this impression that if I've become a four-wheel drive trainer, I have to know everything. Mm. It's physically impossible. If you had a large staff of trainers, like let's say 7P, for example, where you had a half a dozen individuals that are very well versed, you start to get closer to knowing a lot of it. But if you take one trainer that has done a lot of things, they can really only know so much. Like one person can only know, they've only been so many places. Maybe they haven't been to the polar regions or or maybe they haven't crossed the Sahara or maybe they they haven't done these things that help fill in the gap. So I think for the trainers that are listening, it's it's keeping that sense of teachability and that humility with your students because otherwise people get, they get really turned off by the fact that like they've got it all figured out. We, none of us do really. Right. Yeah, I know I don't. There's like trainers I won't recommend anymore because, you know, they went from being the guy that went to off-road parks and mm-hmm. they're the king of Roush Creek and now all of a sudden they're overland trainers. And- yeah. <laughs> yeah. So okay. we, uh, the, the association that I'm part of, the uh, International Four-Wheel Drive Trainers Association, um, that's one of my favorite things is like, you know, a couple of times a year they're doing testing in varying par- various parts of the country and the world and yeah. um, testing new trainers to see if they'll qualify to be certified member of the association. But it is the, so I usually go as an instructor 
factor to these, but I always learn a ton. You know, you get sure. people coming over from Australia and the Netherlands and it's like they have tricks and equipment and totally. knowledge that you're never going to yeah. get on your own and that you get to share in that and learn. I learn so much every time we do a testing. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> it's so fun to go to a different country and see how they solve problems. Like you go to Iceland, they have these giant dump valves on their tires. Oh. Like we worry about airing down. Like it takes forever with the, you yeah. do the valve core removal thing and you're, yeah. it's like a half inch pipe coming out of it. <laughs> I mean, it's just like it airs down instantly. Yeah. Like, and even though they're 44s, they air down yeah. in like 30 seconds. Nice. Yeah. So those are the crazy things that mm-hmm. you learn from other cultures of four wheeling, which is, which is, I think, really important. And a special thanks to this week's sponsor, the medic. When you're heading out, you don't want anything to hold you back. Whether you're planning a week-long adventure or a quick overnight trip to your favorite outdoor spot, we've got you. The Medic's CFX3 powered cooler is designed with any size adventure in mind. The CFX3 allows you to bring more of your favorite food and drink along for the ride, no matter how far you plan to go. Available in multiple sizes, the CFX3 is built for the demands of outdoor use and comes with a handy app that gives you complete control at your fingertips. It's the state-of-the-art, designed-for-rugged-use cooler that you can rely on and enjoy for years to come. Another question that I've got for you, because I've seen you at these events and I've seen you work with a lot of variety in individuals, which means some people that are green or some people that are experienced or they're commercial clients. You are an excellent communicator on the trail. What are some of the things that you've learned about how to keep people calm, how to have effective communication within a group of people that maybe don't even know each other? Right. You need to set the tone immediately that that it's okay. We're all going to do dumb stuff out here and we're, you know, I'm going to try to talk you through it so you don't feel like you're the one looking dumb, you know, just to make it fun. And also that I'll make mistakes or I'll, you know, I'll have airhead moments or something like that. And and that always, at first, it seems to put people back on their heels a little bit. Like, do I want to go out with this person? Do I want to follow this blonde woman? And uh, it's just, you know, the whole, oh, there's no such thing as a dumb question. I Like, that's one of the first things I'll say a lot of times is I'll say, uh, there's no such thing as a dumb question. Of course, we're going to make fun of you later. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. you know, we'll, we'll answer you seriously, you know, on, in front of everybody else. You know, and that gets everybody laughing. <laughs> totally. And, well, so what I've observed in the events that I've attended that you were there is that you do a, a really thorough driver meeting in the beginning. You help people know what to expect. Yes. So that starts to settle them down immediately. So they kind of know what this is going to be like. And then you reassure them that, okay, either this vehicle is well suited for this, or we've got spotters that are set up at the difficult spots. And you start to make the group feel much more comfortable. And then you do interject humor into it, which I think gives the levity that those kinds of situations need, where people need to just feel like it's not a big deal. Like we're out here having fun. Right. This isn't about being perfect and nobody, somebody's going to get stuck. Right. I mean, I think even at the TRX launch, somebody got stuck at the TRX launch up in the cinders and maybe even some sliding off trail. And and, <laughs> and so some real challenges can come up, which are moments for people to learn if they're open to it. Right. And it can happen to any of us. I have the, what is the word I'm looking for? The good fortune, I guess I should say. It's like when I do get stuck, most people think you know, oh, 100% she did it on purpose. Most of the time I did. <laughs> With the, like, I just posted a photo this morning from the dunes this weekend and it was like, we had talked about, oh, we're going to go take you out to some witch's eyes and teach you how to get out of them. And it's like, and I genuinely just blew it on this one, the side of this one dude, and it just ended up sucked right down the filling in the taco. And <laughs> Sure. 
And everybody's like, oh, she did it on purpose. Yes. Yes, I did. <laughs> yes, I did. Bring me a latte. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so good, though. I love I love getting stuck because it yeah. just forces me to relearn. Yeah. And I, need, I need to current. do a Glamis course with you. Oh, yeah. yeah wouldn't you, that be fun? You had an open invitation, you know. Yeah. <laughs> that TRX would have been, oh, man, that would have been fun. Except Chris Walker got to use it. And all of the dunes. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about your motorsports career. So you yeah. have been involved with the Rebel Rally since I think the beginning. Is yes. that correct? Yes. The very first event. Yep. Matt and I both and our organizations are huge believers in that event. I think it's one of the most important events that we have each year because it has gotten so much OEM engagement. Yes. It has it has really reinforced these traditional navigation skills. Most people use stock or near stock vehicles. Um, so across the board, I think that this has been one of the most beneficial new events that I've ever seen in my career. It's very exciting to see. Tell me about how you've seen that evolve. You've won it several times. So give us the playback. When you won, what were you driving and what you learned? Yeah, what was the first first year that you won? So we've been on the podium almost every year and won bone stock three times. Yeah. Um, and that's always been my favorite. My, my, my primary goal is always uh, the bone stock award to just to compete in the vehicle that just in the exact way it came out of the factory. And it's awesome that so many of the competitors out there, whether they're modified or not, but they're the same cars, they take them home and that's what they go get their groceries. Totally. It's their daily driver. And there's really no other you know major competition like, like that yep. in the United States or anywhere that I know of. The Jeep that I won in this year, it was a four by E. Yeah, yep. so you won bone stock. You won the electrified designation. Yes. And you and won overall, overall, right? It was and four by four class, if you want. I like, think that was. I think that's a sweep. Right. <laughs> I think that's kind of a sweep. Like, and four stage wins out of seven days. Like I, I, mean, I was, who's counting? But they, yeah. but they do have. They do have like an all wheel drive class as well. Yes. Like, okay. Yeah, they call it X cross. X cross. X yeah. cross cool. class. Yeah. yeah. It was crazy this year. I was on Rebel, and I mean, you dominated this year. It, it, it was crushing. Crazy. It's like you're sitting on. You know, I had on my iPad the trackers, and I'm yeah. watching staff, and I'm watching this, and it's like, damn, like Nina. Like like miles ahead of people. <laughs> In fact, it was really impressive. And I think that's the cool thing with Rebel that's happening is we're on the seventh year of Rebel now. Oh my gosh. Yeah, seventh year. Yeah. Crazy, isn't it? Yeah. How time flies. And you're now seeing this this new genre in motorsports evolving and you're seeing competitors involve. Oh yeah. Evolve. And it's it's getting really like the competition mm -hmm. is is harder yeah. every year, yeah. and there's more people that can win each year. Right. You know, I feel like when it first started, there's a lot of the gazelle rally people that were kind of those. Okay, like you've kind of got the heads up because you've done this before, but now right. there's this domestic contingent of women that are like badass to do this stuff. Right. It's really oh, cool. Big time. We were involved in training some people who were going to the gazelle before the rebel rally even started, yeah. um, and and training for that, training for the gazelle rally is a completely different. I can't put rebels and gazelles in the same class when we're out at the dunes because it's completely different. Gazelle, it's about driving in a straight line. It's about the shortest mm -hmm. distance. In the rebel rally, it's about being accurate. We call it driving in cursive because smooth driving in the dunes isn't going to be the straight line. You're not going to be bombing up and down you know, yeah. dune faces. In the gazelle, we are trying to teach them how to do that. And it's really rough on your body and your car. Oh, you for know? sure. So, um, it is but definitely Emily, not the best way yeah. to get through the dunes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Emily Miller, having competed in the gazelle rally, she knew that. And, and she knew she didn't want to do that. And she designed this rebel that we get to be good drivers. Yeah. Efficient. And she, you know, it, it's not a race for speed, but speed is definitely, I mean, like you said, I mean, we said, we set a pace. Well, you had, it seemed like you had a plan this year. You realized or realized. Maybe when? 
That was. I love it. But it seemed this year your key to success was efficiency. Yes. Watching on the trackers mm-hmm. or watching you come through places, you had a plan, you'd go through, boom, mm-hmm. done, get the checkpoint, move on quickly, right. where a lot of competitors kind of hang out, take some pictures, right. whatever. It's like, that's how right. you Make were lunch. so far right. ahead because there are speed limits. <laughs> right. There are public lands and right. it's not a race. It's a rally. Right. It, that's the place to make up time. Yeah. Right. For sure. As you know, there were there were plenty of competitors that were driving faster. Oh yeah. Um, than us. I we had two never people sped. almost yeah. hit my earth roamer this year on like, you know, like there's a ninety degree turn and we're taking photos and that means that they need to do eighty mile an hour to that ninety degree turn and lock it up. And I'm like I just watched this one car just like straight through and I'm like sitting in doing, you know, TSD scoring. Yeah. It was crazy. Like there were some people this year that the organization and the competitors will need to grow from that because sportsmanship is so important in events like that, particularly since the rebel has always been known for that. Right. And they've always been known for this camaraderie and helping others out. And you don't help out anyone, including yourself when you break the rules. Right. Actually what it does is it puts the the event at great risk, especially if someone has a very serious accident with a local rancher that's just trying to bring his groceries home. So that will be a challenge, obviously, for the rebel going forward is making sure that people are not speeding. It doesn't mean that at times you don't slightly exceed the speed limit because you come off a rise, but you just you're constantly checking your speed. That shows that you're paying attention in my mind. Otherwise, you're just pushing, pushing, pushing. That's a real risk. And it is the pace. I mean, we're driving 10 hours a day. And so so the pace, there isn't one answer for everybody. Like you were saying, it's, um, you know, how, how long can you be relaxed? I mean, if you are white knuckle for 10 hours, you're exhausted, you're totally. going to make some you're bad smoked. decisions. Yeah, you're yeah smoked. exactly. And so it's just, it's just pushing right to that. Here's as fast as we can go. That's comfortable for the car. And my navigator can still look at her stuff, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, and I can maintain this and not be just completely toast in, in a few hours time. Now that you've done this for six years, going on seven years, mm-hmm. what are the top two or three takeaways for you on how the rebel has changed you as either a person or a driver? Oh boy. So personally, it's definitely um, that the control, being a business owner, being the trip leader, you know, alpha, it's always um, just showing up just to see what gets thrown at us for the day. Emily likes to have her twists and turns and stuff and it's great. And at first it's like stressful because you're like, oh, I'm not prepared for this. I don't know. But but no one else is either. Sure. You know, I remember that one of the big lessons for me on the very first rally was, I think it was like day three. Or I don't even remember what day it was. We had what we felt felt was just a really crappy day. It was just like, oh my gosh, we blew it. We missed so much today, you know, and we kind of, we came back with our tail dragging between our legs and stuff. And then, you know, when the scores come out and everybody else is kind of down and stuff too, and scores come out and it's like, we were in, you know, third place for the day. It was like, well, we sucked less <laughs> than most people. It's, and you allowed yourself to learn from that. Right. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, you don't know, you know, until the dust settles, you know, what happens, you're competing against you're competing against yourself but there is no there's no perfect day I, I remember telling Emily too at one point it was like if you really want to screw with my head give me more checkpoints than I can do in a day that I can't that I have to you like have, to have items on my list that don't get checked <laughs> off that day you know my to-do list is incomplete <laughs> oh that's cool well congratulations so, on so much success with the you. rebel and for always being a champion of that event. And even beyond that, for those that are listening that would like to compete in the Rebel Rally, this is a women's only navigation and driving rally that's conducted in 
Nevada and California. It's it's a very long. Technically, three and states technically this Arizona year. this year. Yeah, technically Arizona. Year, okay, yeah. Yeah. so it's a very it's a very long route, and it's an incredible undertaking that Nina also provides a lot, as well as others. But there are individuals that can help train you to compete in the rebel. So if you've always wanted to do it, if you've thought this is the coolest thing ever, which it is, then <laughs> how do you get prepared for that? There are the organization, the Rebel Rally has people that can talk to you give you advice, help you work through the process. And then there are trainers available like Nina that can take you in the dunes, show you how to drive your vehicle in the dunes so that you're well prepared to at least enjoy the event. All of those resources are And you can rent a Jeep from Barlow Adventures. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, there you go. Yep. Yeah. I didn't know that. We even include the Max tracks. <laughs> <laughs> how cool is that? So now we're going to do a little rapid fire with you. So uh, mm-hmm. what is your favorite stuck story? You getting stuck. I already told you one with the uh, don't let dad catch us with the truck on the ranch. (laughs) What was your craziest? I mean, your deepest stuck. My gosh, there's a, so most of the time I got to think about like, um, you know, most of our nastiest recoveries fortunately have not been myself. It's it's other people, you know, that we just encounter on the trail even. All right. So you're, you're in, you're in, you got the whole family in the TJ. (laughs) Right. And we were this, so this was like the early days of GPS, you know, right around the time Matt was born. Mm-hmm. And um, it was like, remember the old analog G- GPS? It was just like all you had was totally the, the yellow the, one. Yes, and the the black the black line on the screen. There's and no topography. It. There's yeah. no yeah. Sure. You knew that just, Denver and you could, was you knew your GPS coordinates. You, you get your GPS coordinates and you could see your track. Sure, you yeah. know so which was perfect. And we had made a wrong turn in Grand Staircase Escalante, and we we're you know yapping yapping and didn't really realize it until we were like miles you know east of where we thought we should be. And um and of course we're in a TJ, so gas <laughs> gas is always a All significant concern. Right, exactly. Then uh, we got turned around and we. We had to use this. Was a we had a Arizona Atlas. I think it was a Delorme Atlas, mm. and we knew our GPS coordinates. And so it was one of those moments where uh, you know you got you know trust trust the equipment because you think oh well for sure we're here and the GPS coordinates say you know you kind of get your fingers together on the map. Sure, it says Why we're over I, here. Why am I in Monticello? Yeah, right. <laughs> and, and the track, like I'm looking at the road on the map and the turns it made, and it looks like our track that we just did. That can't be right. You know, it's like, no, it's the, it's that's that's, that's right. true. <laughs> so you are over here and you don't want it to be because now you've gone 40 miles out of your way on a 180 mile range tank of gas. That totally <laughs> happens. Right. Exactly. We finally kind of made it on fumes so that we're literally gaslight is on and we're coming into, we made it down back down to like Smoky Mountain Road. You know, now mm. we're now like, you know, 10 miles out of Escalante or something sure. where we're, we know there's gas station and uh, we see that this guy on this ATV three wheel, of course, back then, you know, back and then, uh, those days before my <laughs> birthday. <laughs> and he's like, oh, I'm looking for my dogs. Have you seen a couple dogs out here? We're like, we're so glad to see you. <laughs> Another human. Someone that okay. Can, yeah. That's a great story. It was. It, I had a moment of that in the dunes too, where it was, uh, I, you know, I've been out in the dunes a lot and there was a point where we got to, or, uh, okay, all right. You know, every, you know, we had a big old stuck, somebody got seriously buried and, you know, we're digging out. It's starting to get dark. It's an overcast day. It's like, okay, everyone, this way is the way out, you know, <laughs> and we start going and, and the Jeep, you know, the compass on the Jeep dashboard says, North and I'm I'm like no no we're going south what's wrong with the jeep you know? <laughs> <laughs> so I get out and check the compass.
compass and it was like, oh, no, yeah, trust the equipment there. Trust, yeah. trust your tools a little bit there. So, well, which, which leads me to my next question. What is, I know you're very minimalist and you mm. tend to do very few modifications, but what's your favorite gear that you bring along on almost every trip? It can be anything. Okay. A shovel. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Strap or a rope. You know, I, I've gotten more and more to I prefer a kinetic energy recovery rope instead of a, a strap. Um, sure. Even for towing, it's kind of nice. I, I think you and I have had a difference of opinion on, I use a kinetic rope a lot more than I used to. Sure. And I'll incorporate it in winching and everything. Get, so just to give you a little mm-hmm. shock absorber, sort of, you know, so to speak. So uh, the shovel, the rope, uh, Max Tracks is on most trips these days. And that's not just, you know, throwing love across the table or anything here. <laughs> yeah, they true. work. They yep. work. And your brain, honestly. So one of the... Oh, I'm screwed. One, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> what one am I going to do? I got from, uh, Wait, sorry, what? <laughs> <laughs> one of our trainers, John Marshall, uh, I steal this phrase from him. It's great. It's like, you don't always have what you want, but you always have what you need. Mm. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, basic stuff like first aid kit and the preparation ahead of time of if I'm going into the deep back country, someone's always going to know where I am. And we have the advantage these days is, you know, a lot of our fleet vehicles, of course, have GPS trackers on them, too. So after the first rebel rally, my husband was like, you're never going anywhere without a tracker on your vehicle again. I like that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> hey, it doesn't have to worry about you as much. Sure. Right. Exactly. Yeah, you're off being an adventurer. Yeah. So technology has um, has made things both easier, but it's also provided, as we've talked about before, is it provides a false sense of security out mm-hmm. there. Yeah. Um, and I think like we had the blizzard, remember the big blizzard in Tahoe, mm. um, right before the holidays. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, and people were going, oh, it's snowing. We got to go play in the snow and everybody's, you know, stuck out there for hours on I-80. And, um, and it's like, I think people have the mentality of, um, well, I can just, you know, I can always call 911 or something. And it's like, well, 911 couldn't get to them. You know, I know the guys that were the first responders up there and they were like, there was calls. They just couldn't make it. They didn't have enough people yeah, or they sure. physically could not get to them. Sure. Just going out with the mentality in the first place that you're going to have to self-recover will make you... Or you have to self-survive. So you're going to bring blankets along. You're going to bring water and food and those basic supplies. Because you never know when that three-hour tour is going to turn turn into something. That's a reference that Matt didn't get. (laughs) Hey, hey, I just sung the song, man. I know Gilligan's Island. You know Gilligan's Island. Okay, so I got a a generational test for you. Where does this phrase come from? Pardon me, would you have any gray poupon? It was the it was the commercial with Rolls Royce. I'm so impressed. Yeah, there, there you go. go. It's not really, I mean, that's kind of like Matt that was actually generation. in that commercial. There's <laughs> a little kid in the back. Yeah. <laughs> most most people your age think it's from you know Wayne's World reference or something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I actually grew up next to the town that Wayne's World was set in. Ooh. Grew up next to Aurora, Illinois. It <laughs> was uh, similar to what the movie led it to be. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of mullets. Interesting. Uh, okay. okay. Good, to know. Good to know. Good to know. Aurora, Illinois. All right. So the next rapid fire question, mm-hmm. if someone's going to do their top two or three modifications to a vehicle, what would you recommend that people do? The first thing is going to be tires mm-hmm. um, because uh, just out of necessity. So even though we talk about like, you know, Rubicons, for example, coming out of the factory, Jeeps coming with you know, uh, more aggressive tires than we used to ever be able to get. They're still OEM tires. They're still usually a compound that's designed specifically to be go quieter and more fuel efficient. Mm-hmm. So the first thing I'm going to do is dump those. Get them. Let's get loud and Screw un- inefficient. Right now, usually the tires that come from the tire manufacturers are usually going to be a tougher tire. Yeah. So the tires are literally the tires meet the ground. Yeah. Literally and figuguratively. You know, not going cheap on your tires. Get sure. good tires for what you're going to be doing. Okay. And then that's what would be the, what would be 
well, the next thing. So actually, first is training, right? We talked yep, about yep, it. Okay, then true. modification. Yeah. Um, and then tires, uh, your equipment, just some of your basic equipment, like we talked about. Sure. What's next after that? What do you find What's that you like? That? A good quality jack. Yeah. The factory and to make sure jacks. that it works with the vehicle, because yes. after you, some people add a lift, larger tires, yep. and the jack no longer works, yep. or they don't bring a base for the jack, and then it doesn't work in the sand or in the mud. For sure. And I think that this is what I love about asking this question is that it always comes back to these very simple things. Like no one has ever said a snorkel is my first. (laughs) And I'm not saying that a snorkel is a bad idea. I'm just saying that it shouldn't be the first thing that you do. Like make sure you've got great tires. Make sure that your spring rate is suitable to the load that you're carrying with you. I mean, these really basic things. Your car isn't going to fall apart. I don't know how many like Land Rovers I've seen and they have all their perfect accessories and then like no maintenance. Their tie rod end is like moving like this. (laughs) Totally. Well, because that doesn't look cool. Yeah, it doesn't look cool. All right. So then you're an entrepreneur in addition to being an adventurer and a motorsports winner. What are some books that you have really enjoyed in any of those categories? (laughs) Maybe books aren't your thing. No, I am an avid reader. I'm just laughing because last time my husband was getting on my back. You need to go to sleep. I was geeking out on this. um, I'm reading a land navigation book right now that's like... Yeah, very engrossing. What's the book? What's the name of the book? Oh my gosh! And you're gonna ask me the hard questions. I'll have to send it to you. Okay. I don't we'll remember. We'll I don't remember the I name of the books different. I read. Right. It's a weird thing. I right. get so. Oh, it's I a can book where this happens. Visualize this happens. the cover, but I couldn't sure. tell you. Well, we'll put it yeah. in the show notes. For yeah. Sure. No <laughs> Absolutely. problem. Absolutely. What are some other books that you've kind of come to love? Oh my gosh. Your favorite uh, fiction, nonfiction, Lois whatever. Price. Yeah, her love, stuff's yeah, great. Love her stuff. Um, yeah, I I go back and forth between fiction and nonfiction. Um, I, I do love to read other people's stories uh, of their world travels because there's a common thread of like, you know, crap's going to happen and you just figure out how to deal with it. Sure. And, that's, and if you're if you're waiting to go, you know, when you think crap's not going to happen, you're just you're never going to go. Yeah, so. for sure. That's great advice as well. So now how do people find out more about you and what you do? How do people follow you on Instagram? Ah. How do they follow you on all of the my face twits and all those other things? My face twits. <laughs> Twit face. Right. Do you TikTok? I do I'd like not. to introduce you to my favorite TikToker, oh. Scott Brady. Oh, no, it's terrible. It's terrible. It's terrible. It's terrible. It's terrible. <laughs> I don't TikTok. Caleb does though. Caleb TikTok. Yeah. yeah. You, you hired a TikToker. Did you know he was a TikToker when you hired him? He's really good at it. No. He's, he's, he's really good at it. a lot of things. Like, right. I, I now know the phrase, it slaps. That's something that apparently... Um, <laughs> See, now you're starting to feel... Like you've got another generation under you. There you go. Weird, you know, life goes on. That's how it works. I have all these like trendy words that I say because Caleb says them. There you go. I don't know. It slaps. I don't know what that means. I probably shouldn't say that out loud. The way I feel about it. Well, we should probably figure out what that means before we say it again. Right. (laughs) All right. Uh, So, so how do they how do they find out? How do they follow you on Instagram? How do they follow you on? And I'm sure you have accounts for yourself personally, and then for the business. We're very active on Instagram and. To lesser extent, Facebook, but Instagram, um, Barlow Adventures, Barlow. It is underscore adventures. We're going to put yeah. it right here. All right, um, and then how for, do they follow for, you individually? Follow me individually. Like you, so like actually, your own, your my, own. Um, on Instagram, I do. I don't have a personal account. Okay, I do. Sure. I do incorporate some more personal stuff on that Instagram account than I do on like the, the Facebook page. Sure. Facebook, we have a Jeep Rental page, a Sedona Jeep Rental page, and then we have you know Barlow Adventures, you know my personal page on on Facebook. And then do uh, you have a an Instagram for your team. 
for your racing team? Yes. Yes. And it's, I'm, oh my gosh, I just changed it. I think it's team 129. If you rebel rally team 129, okay. um, you know, at least you can find it by that hashtag. So, and then people um, can also find more about the rebel rally, rebelrally.com. Yes. Mm-hmm. And they can find the rebel rally on Instagram as well to get more information on that. I guess I've got two more questions. Where do you want to go anywhere in the world? Like what's your like the, Chile. You want to go to Chile? I, I, awesome. I don't well, that's on uh, yeah, for whatever that's like my hot button right Perfect. now. Perfect. Yeah. Pisco Sours and Big Dunes. They got them there. <laughs> yeah. got them there it's like the sure. California of South America with a lot no less question. people. <laughs> no question. Yeah, it's a wonderful country. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, you would love that. And then last question is which we try to ask if you were to give just one piece of advice to someone who is getting ready to be a Rebel Rally contributor or a, a competitor or a traveler. What would be the words of encouragement that you would give someone new to this? You just need to do it and you, you just start taking the steps. Um, it's overwhelming. And if when you get to the end of it and you look back and everything that you had to go through, you probably w- would be intimidated to start. Um, you start and you're, it's never going to be perfect. Like we talked about yep. a few minutes ago, you have enough. Mm. Just you know, get to the point where you have enough and take the next step. Yeah. And just go. You there know? you go. That's wonderful. That's wonderful <laughs> advice. Matt, do you have any more questions for Nina? What's your favorite Jeep? No, oh, no. What? I'm going to retract that question. <laughs> what do you think the best Jeep ever made is? Ooh, ever made. Mm. It's honestly. You could like, have one you know, Jeep. I, you you know had, what I get? You I, could never sell. Oh my gosh. That's like asking you to like. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> one car and never yeah. sell. This, person. this is Ooh. actually a person, the only person we've ever had on the podcast cars. that has more cars yeah. than you, Matt. Yeah. So. <laughs> I want to buy Matt's coffee table book of all the cars I've owned. I'm, I'm do it. <laughs> one yeah, one that, day I will have a coffee table book yeah. one foot thick. It's already there almost, Matt. <laughs> Honestly, the the one that I have the most anticipation for right mm. now is the Gladiator 4xE. I love my Gladiator, but at, with all the other drivetrains available right now, it's the 3.6 or the diesel. The yeah. diesel is great. And if I trade this one in, it would probably be on a diesel. The Gladiator 4xE, we know, is a couple years away, but that I'm really looking forward to. And especially with leaps and bounds, how the electrified is coming yeah. where we're going to be two years from now, even. You know, we have some no concepts doubt. coming for East Jeep Safari. You know, it's, it's it's all coming. Yeah. yeah. It's all coming. I mean, <laughs> the number of manufacturers that have set lines in the sand of being only yeah. electric by 2025, which is three years away. Unbelievable. That's but, why I'm keeping my LJ. There you go. That's the infrastructure coming along with that. Yeah. I, did you attend the Power Innovations or the, the Rebel Rally Electrified session? They had Power Innovations on there. And, and as much as they were involved in the Rebel Rally without, before that presentation, I had no idea how involved they are with getting this infrastructure out there, including, you know, portable charging well, electric trailers just, and everything. So, you know, yeah. it seems that electric has become this almost contentious issue. Everything's contentious. You cannot. <laughs> why does, why does everything have to be I know. an argument? I know. It's like, there's it's nothing exhausting. wrong with an electric car. Keep driving your car if you want to. Like <laughs> the fact that somebody wants to buy an electric car, why do you care? I, I have like, an it, oil it, well <laughs> on my roof. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, like You're producing why, energy. That's yeah. why I want an electric car. I live in Arizona. Arizona. Like if I lived Lots in of sun. Like, if I lived in Scotland, I'd think that that was a pretty dumb idea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. But I live in Arizona and I don't know. Any other questions for Nina? I mean, that's really the one Jeep that you'd have if you could have one Jeep. For the you rest can't of time. believe it. What do you want a the answer to be, Matt? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It's, yeah. it's, it's like I get this question all the time. What's your favorite trail? It's like it really. It's the one I'm on right now. Yeah. I am like so geeking out on what yeah. I'm doing right now. You know, it's, you're uh, being in the yeah. moment, which yeah. is awesome. Well, 
Nina, thank you so much for being on the podcast. We have thank been trying you. to get My you pleasure. out here for the longest time, a couple reschedules, but we had you here today. You have been such an inspiration to so many people. You really have, and you've always been humble about it, and you have shared your knowledge freely with others, and you've been so supportive of new people coming into the Rebel and into backcountry travel as well. Everybody that's listening, please check out Nina and her adventures, and we will talk to you next time. 